Sun, beaches, and Latin-inspired flavors are what people around the world call their vacation paradise. We call it home. Welcome to the weekly podcast that captures it all, The Scoop on Miami. Let's discover and rediscover Miami together with Ernie Emad, a 54-year resident of the Magic City, and Miami native Lenny Rada on The Scoop on Miami. And now, here's Ernie Emad and Lady Rada. Welcome to The Scoop on Miami 120, and we are live right now, excited to bring you the special uh, one-hour programs, a little over an hour, uh, with Zoo Miami's Ron McGill. I'm Ernie Emad, the broker owner of One Premier International and the host, and I am standing alongside my co-host. Hi, I'm Lainey Rada, leading edge broker associate with Douglas Elliman. Fantastic. Did you have a good week? It was good. <laughs> I, I sold a house in less than 48 hours with nine offers over list price. That's good. Uh, that is good. It's always good to have a um, a property in that hot price range in South Florida. Low inventory, um, well-priced. and market is doing great. The market is uh, doing uh, fantastic. Um, so let's see. Uh, we start every week with an inspirational quote. And what is the inspirational quote this week, Lainey? I thought that the right person to bring up um, this time is Jane Goodall because we were all about animals this show so she said what makes us human I think is an ability to ask questions a consequence of our sophisticated spoken language and that's what we do ask a lot of questions yes especially <laughs> I ask a lot of questions um, but that's how you learn and that's how you can really uh, serve your customers and, and make sure that uh, when you're asking a lot of questions that you're also doing more listening um, so yes. that we use these two a lot more than this one. Yes, in direct proportion. You have two ears and one mouth. Absolutely do. Um, so every week we go with Miami Rewind and it kind of ties in what the whole program is all about. Do you want to give us a little lead into uh, this week's uh, Miami Rewind? Well, um, since we're uh, going to be at the zoo today in the show, I had to think about and give tribute to the Crandon Park Zoo. And I got to ask Ron McGill if he remembered my old friend, the baboon named Gus. <laughs> And he did. So I was really happy because my brother said, I think it was a an orangutan. And I said, no, it was a baboon. So I won. But that's OK. We also he learned was funny. that there's only two animals left. Yes. At, from uh, the old zoo. From the old zoo into mm -hmm. this uh, zoo. So that was also very yeah. interesting. An elephant and a Galapagos turtle, tortoise. Tortoise. Yes. Absolutely. We had a good time uh, there. I had a lot of technical issues. So my sincere apologies. Um, but we were able to finally, I was able to finally put it all together as best I could. And let's go with Miami Rewind right now with Lainey Rada. It's time to take a look back with Lainey Rada. With Lainey Rada. Miami, Miami Rewind. The Matheson family had a coconut plantation in Key Biscayne. They donated 900 acres to the city, which became Crandon Park. There was an intimate little place that was a child's wonderland named Crandon Park Zoo that opened in 1948. The story goes that a traveling circus got stranded in Miami and sold two bears, three monkeys, and one goat to the county for $270. That little bunch was the beginning. 
Most families would make a day of the park. The beautiful beach has never changed. Families would go to the beach, have a picnic, ride on the kiddie rides or the carousel, and then you hoped you could go to the zoo right after that. You could just walk around in your bathing suit. The first animals that greeted us were the Galapagos tortoises. They were so docile, it seemed like they were friendly. You could reach in and touch their backs. There was Gus the baboon. I never forget the otters because of the revealing tank they swam in. I could go on and on, as well as many grown-up kids who went there. The path was only a mile and a half, and it was a treat. It had a mini vintage railroad station that rode a small train around a track. There was also a tram to ride past a giant steaming cauldron of gold coins. The anticipation came crossing the small wooden bridge to enter the petting zoo barn. There were these great machines that molded plastic animals. They smelled unique and you watched those few minutes while the press was making your new toy for 25 cents. I wish I saved one. I thought the building full of bats was creepy. The last stop were the big cats. With animals that were purchased, gifted from other zoos and strays, the collection grew. The unique setting became one of the top 25 zoos in the United States. By the 50s and 60s, it expanded even more. In 1967, the animals grew to 1,200 with rare pairs of elephants, rhinos, white tigers, and a special key deer. The pair of bald eagles hatched eggs for the first time in captivity for 50 years. In one of the seemingly best locations for a zoo in the world, in 1965, Hurricane Betsy created a three-foot storm surge that drowned 250 animals that were locked in steel cages. There was more controversy of animal cruelty and abuse. Things have evolved so much and the standards for animals in captivity is completely different today. The decision was made to relocate the animals to a cage-free environment that was less hurricane prone. At the opening of the new zoo in 1980, small pieces of the bars were handed out and called pieces of the past. I couldn't believe the animals moved. But in 1998, Hurricane Andrew took its toll on the new zoo, too. Now the old zoo area is open and is named the Gardens at Crandon Park. It's a botanical garden that you can stroll through anytime. If you enter unknowingly, it must be very strange to see the empty cages that are now mysterious ruins. Peacocks and iguanas greet you in the 53 acres that look more like a messy backyard. There are nice varieties of palms, other birds, and some trees from other countries. It's packed with memories of anyone who grew up here, and I would go back in time any day. My dad told me he used to sneak in and ride the camels when he was in high school. When I was small, I used to stare at those camels and wish they could tell me if it was true. I hope this took some of you back on a special trip down memory lane. That's the scoop. I love that zoo. Oh, it was so great. Fantastic for kids. And and just the nice way that you could go to the beach and just come, you know, walk on over and hang around. Yeah. Um, it was it, so intimate. Obviously, the animals are much better off right now yeah. than uh, before. Uh, but it was much more intimate. It reminded you of the Orange Bowl. You were so close to the action. Yeah. And uh, now that's gone. But, uh, um, yeah. Uh, 
I guess all zoos were like that, right? All caged in and circuses, you know, things were a lot different then. Absolutely. Uh, So on Friday of this past week, we went in to see Ron McGill in his office. And um, uh, what a unique office. It's like uh, walking into a memorabilia uh, place. It's so neat. All of the People that have interviewed him throughout the years um, took over one of the walls. So you had all these um, famous uh, um, newscasters and reporters and so forth. Celebrities. Um, celebrities. And uh, a lot of uh, um, um, stuff about Miami. And obviously during the hurricane, he had some uh, uh, old newspaper clippings um, behind us. Um he had a little one of these little squares <laughs> for everybody that has ever uh, interviewed him, um, and I thought that was neat. Uh, I guess when they interviewed him, he asked them for that, so um, that was pretty unique. Um, but I know we're going to start with a co-hostess, uh, but uh, and then you want to do the um, uh, the introduction of Ron McGill. Do you want to go ahead and do the introduction yeah, let's now? Do the bio now. All right, perfect. Um, so let's go ahead and uh, uh, introduce Ron McGill to everyone. Yes. Ron McGill is the Zoo Communications and Media Relations Director for Zoo Miami. He's also a Nikon ambassador for the United States. He was born on February 28th in 1960 in New York City. He's married with two children. He's worked with wildlife for over 40 years. He's the host of HITN's National Wildlife Documentary Program, Mundo Salvaje con Ron McGill. As Zoo's Miami's Goodwill Ambassador, he's made frequent television appearances on many programs, including National Geographic Explorer, The Discovery Networks, The Today Show, Good Morning America, The Late Show, CBS This Morning, Dateline, and CNN, as well as Spanish Networks, Univision, and Telemundo. In addition, he's written and produced many wildlife articles and award-winning photographs that have appeared in publications and galleries around the world. He's traveled extensively through Africa, Asia, and tropical America while developing and directing conservation projects and six Emmy award-winning documentaries focusing on the wildlife of those regions. Other than Zoo Miami and the Zoo Miami Foundation, Ron has worked with several children's charities with a special dedication to the Make-A-Wish Foundation, where he helps to grant wishes for children facing life-threatening diseases. In addition, he's a regular speaker at schools and civic organizations throughout South Florida in hopes of inspiring our youth to follow their dreams while showing them the importance of protecting our world's wildlife for generations to come. Ron's proudest professional accomplishment is the establishment of the Ron McGill Conservation Endowment at Zoo Miami Foundation. This endowment is the largest of its kind at the zoo and provides tens of thousands of dollars annually to wildlife conservation by providing annual scholarships as well as supporting field conservation projects designed to protect wildlife in the wild areas where it's naturally found. So this is a a very significant uh, person that has is continues continues to do a lot and advocate for what he believes in. I don't think Miami could have found a better person, right, to be an advocate mm-hmm. for so many animals uh, mm-hmm. for so many years, and uh, he is everywhere. 
no question about it. And we're going to now introduce you to our co-hostess <laughs> um, who asked some questions of Ron McGill. And let's go ahead and introduce you to Sasha. And she was on our program a week ago. Last time. Um, that's absolutely correct. And uh, um, she's a spectacular young lady with uh, her own uh, nonprofit organization called I Want My Ocean Back. And she also wrote a book. Remember the title? Mm-hmm. Legends of My Mom's Closet. And I, she's a spectacular. So let's go ahead and uh, um, listen to the interview with Sasha and Ron McGill. So now we have our co-hostess. And we have Sasha Olson that's going to be talking with Ron now. Thank you. So my first question for today is, um, if you were stranded on an island, and you can choose one animal to be with you, which one would you choose? If I was stranded on an island, on an island being stranded, I think the one animal I choose to be with me, we're talking about a wild animal, right? Yes. It would probably be a bottlenose dolphin. Because I, I think there's something about dolphins that are so intelligent. Mm -hmm, yes. I think they, they know a lot more than we give them credit for. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm always fascinated by them. And I think if I would be able to befriend a dolphin, it would help me survive on that island. It could bring me things from the ocean. It could teach me how to mm -hmm. live off the ocean. And I think it would be very smart to have a marine mammal of that yes. kind of intelligence with me. I heard that they were, they were really smart and they're really kind. Very smart, mm -hmm. very kind, very sociable. Mm -hmm. um, I've been very fortunate to be with dolphins all over the world um, and see them in the wild and under human care. Uh, I've helped rescue dolphins that have stranded and I've been very impressed by how intelligent they are, how compassionate they seem to be with each other in many ways. Very fascinating animals. Mm -hmm. And what's an animal show or documentary that everyone has to see? Planet Earth. Mm -hmm. I think Planet Earth one of my heroes, if you look up on that wall there, you see that gentleman I'm handing that award to? That's Sir David Attenborough. He's one of my heroes. He's the person who was one of the greatest wildlife presenters in the world. I watched him on television for many years, and he narrates the good version of Planet Earth. So if you get a chance to see Planet Earth, watch it. It's some of the best filming, the best documentary, nature documentary I've ever seen. Yes, I'll get home and I'll watch it right away. Good, you're gonna love it. Thank you. My next question is, okay, my next question is, sorry. It's okay, take your time. I'm so excited Listen, to meet you today. You, you, you are a wonderful young lady. I want you to know, I looked at this book that you're working on. This is a precious book. This is a great reflection on what a great person you are, what a great adult you're going to be. I think you're going to grow up to change the world, mm -hmm. and people like you inspire me. Okay, so don't, don't ever be overwhelmed by anybody. You know, my father told me something when I was your age, and he said, listen, no matter who you meet in the world, they will know something that you don't know. But you have to understand that no matter who you meet in the world, you're going to know something that they don't know. So what's the lesson there? The lesson is you should always talk. You should always exchange ideas. You should always exchange information because that's the best way to learn, right? Yes. Okay. I'm very impressed by Thank you, you because so much. you came in here and you didn't have any notes or anything. You just started talking. You started asking me your questions. You know, I know a lot of adults that can't do that. So congratulations. Thank you. All right. Okay. So my next question is, if animals could say something to us right now in 2020, what do you think they would tell us? They would say, help save our planet. 
This is our home. It's not just a home for the animals, but it's a home for us as human beings. You know, animals, animals for us are what we call indicators. They indicate to us the health of the planet. Mm -hmm. And when we start seeing things like animals, populations becoming lowered, animals going extinct, uh, animals not being able to reproduce properly, that should be a, a warning flag to all of us that not too far in the future, that's gonna happen to us. When you start seeing things happen to animals, that should be a warning sign to all of us that we need to do something. We need to make a change to make sure we're protecting the world for us because we all share the planet. So I think what animals would tell us is that understand how important our home is for you too. I think that's really also important that we take care of our environment because a lot of animals are really suffering right now. Absolutely they are, you know. I know you're a big proponent of the ocean. Yes. You live by the ocean all your life. Mm -hmm. And as you know, the overwhelming majority of the world is made up of the ocean. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's ironic we know more about the moon than we know about the ocean. Um, yes, we do. We know more about the moon than we know about the ocean because of all these undiscovered things. How much life is in the ocean? How much the ocean helps sustain the quality of life for all of us? So all of these things, I, I really salute you for your effort to bring people, bring, bring people's attention to how important it is to protect the ocean, uh, to save the, uh, the wildlife within the ocean, to not pollute the ocean, the incredible problems we have with plastics and, and garbage being thrown into the ocean. So you see, you're gonna make a big difference. You keep on following that path, you stay focused, you stay passionate like that, and you're gonna make a big difference in the world. Thank you so much. You're welcome, thank you. And my last and final question is, you've handled so many wild animals all over the world. What's the most dangerous thing you've ever done? <laughs> well, you know, all wild animals can be dangerous, but I think it's important that I point this out. Mm -hmm. Animals are not mean, okay? Whenever I've gotten hurt working around an animal, it's been my fault because animals don't understand if you're trying to help them. In the wild, you know, animals eat other animals. They compete with each other. So they don't understand if you're trying to help them. They think you're trying to eat them or trying to hurt them. So anytime I've been hurt, it's been my fault. So in that sense, any animal can be dangerous. Any dangerous, you know, any wild animal can be dangerous. Now, if you want to ask me which animal I got hurt the most by, it would have been a crocodile. I got bitten pretty badly by a crocodile here in my hand, but there's a good story to this. You want to hear it? Yes, thank you. Okay. So I got bitten by this crocodile, it was pretty bad. It was my fault, I wasn't, I was being careless when I was moving this crocodile. It bit me in the hand, I had to go to the hospital. I had surgery in my hand. And I thought to myself, this hurts so badly. What can possibly happen good from this, right? So then I'm waiting in my hospital room and I have to go down to physical therapy because I had to have a physical therapist teach me how to use my hand again. So I go down into the physical therapy wing and I wait and my physical therapist walks in. She was the most beautiful woman I've ever seen in my life. She looked like a princess. I thought, oh my goodness, how lucky could I be? She came up and she held my hand and she taught me how to use it again, and she took really good care of me, and my hand got all better, and a year later, I married her. That's how I met my wife. So if I hadn't gotten bitten by the crocodile, I would never have gotten to the hospital, I would never have met my wife. Isn't she beautiful? Wow. She's stunning, right? She's like a goddess. I would never have met her 
if I hadn't been bitten by the crocodile. So the lesson is, like my dad always told me, no matter how bad something is at a time, there's a good reason for it to happen. That's the lesson. Okay, so those were all my questions. Thank you so much for having me. It was a great experience, and I'm so grateful that you invited me. It is my privilege and my honor to have you here. You are everything that's good about your generation, okay? Thank you. You are a role model for all your peers. You need to keep inspiring them. You need to always keep leading the way you do. You know, this day we hear about social media and everybody wanting followers to be a follower. I say, don't be a follower, be a leader, okay? Let people maybe follow you, but don't be like you need to follow anybody. Create your own path, be a leader, and you can change the world. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank it's you. a pleasure. You look very beautiful. And thank, thank you, you very much for this book. I'll treasure it, okay? Thank you. I hope you stay safe and healthy. I, I hope the same for you. You're a sweetheart. Thank all right? you. I hope we see each other again soon. I do hope so. Yes. I think we will. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> Isn't she a cutie? <laughs> She, I, I adore her. So you can't ask me. I'm partial. <laughs> and and you can, uh, Ron has a passion for animals, but also for kids, mm -hmm. right? You can see him light up and, and share those personal stories with her. Mm -hmm. um, I think it was very impactful. And it was uh, a, a great interview with uh, Sasha Olson mm -hmm. and uh, Ron McGill. Good. So when we come back, we're going to have the actual interview with Ron McGill and uh, myself and Lainey. And we're also going to have another segment, right? We're going to have the 305's Hidden Treasure. And what else? Whatever comes up, right? <laughs> we don't have too many more surprises. <laughs> <laughs> They're past now. <laughs> I think this is it. You bet they are. <laughs> I'm Lainey Rada, a leading edge broker associate with Douglas Elliman. I have over 35 years of experience in market cycles to bring to every transaction, and I'm still alive. When you want to see how I sell 85% of my listings and the average agent sells 40%, we need to talk. I break records, the fastest sale, the most offers, the highest price per square foot. Which one do we want to accomplish? My company includes superior quality marketing to enhance your property and the worldwide exposure, which matters in Miami. If you want to buy, I'm a Miami native. I know the area extremely well. Put my negotiating skills to work. I'm the only Laney Rada in the world, so it's easy to find me. But I'll help you. My phone number is 305-710-8558. That's 305-710-8558. Let's set up a time to talk. From this moment on, consumers will expect it and sellers will demand it. Cinematic video walkthroughs for all of your listings. Professional photography, cinematic video walkthroughs, on-camera video tours, and professional voiceover narration. I'm Ernie Emad, head of BlueHourStudios.com. Blue Hour Studios is a progressive visual and audio powerhouse producing high-end video and audio productions. Become an expert in your field with a professionally produced podcast from our studio in Coral Gables. Call Blue Hour Studios today to elevate your image and voice. BlueHourStudios.com We're back with more of The Scoop on Miami. Find our podcast on iTunes and on YouTube as a video. Our Facebook page and thescooponmiami.com. While there, don't forget to subscribe, share, and like our podcast channel.
And now, here's Ernie Enag and Lenny Rada. The Scoop on Miami can be found on iTunes as well as scooponmiami.com where you'll be able to hear and watch all of our episodes. We also have a YouTube page and uh, coming next week, we promise more social media sites so that we can get our show uh, to more of you. Um, I'm here with Lainey Rada and she is a, um, uh, a leading Edge <laughs> broker, broker associate, associate with Douglas Elliman. <laughs> I'm a realtor. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And she sold the home in one day with seven offers. No, that's under two days with nine offers. Under two days with, uh, all right. It but it's a, just like my commercial. That's absolutely right. And it says, right? Yeah, it does. Mm -hmm. Sure does. So we're going to now go into the um, interview that we had with uh, uh, Ron McGill at Zoo Miami uh, this past Friday. Is there anything you want to say about it? Oh, just uh, it was just fantastic to be in his office, which is like a museum, uh, because like Ernie mentioned, the one wall has all the people that he's had interviews with. And then behind him, he has all pictures of all the people that are important to him in his life. And then on another wall, he has all his awards. And then he has really interesting uh, sculptures and models of animals like uh the first one he put together was a a, the, a huge frog there's a skeleton of a frog and then he has uh facing him which he's going to talk about in the interview are the most important pictures that inspire him every day so it was great to learn all these personal stories and know um some of the the things that created the man that he is yeah absolutely so Without any further ado, here is Ron McGill. We are inside Ron McGill's office here at Zoo Miami. We are so pleased that you've given us the time. Uh, we know it's busy as you are, although you are over the all over the place. It's amazing. <laughs> as I started to do some research, I've been here for 55 years. It is so wonderful the type of uh, acknowledgement, the type of uh, information that you provide about these animals. Uh, you were born for this. I, I've been very, very lucky. You know, I've been uh, able to do what I love to do. Uh, it's enabled me to be here for 40 years. I feel like I've been here like, for a year. Um, and, uh, you know, I think there, anytime you, I have a job when I tell people, when you get paid to do something that people pay to do, you are extremely fortunate. So I've been able to live that dream for a long time. Well, let's not let anybody know that you would do this for free or you would pay someone to let you do that because I've heard that before. Uh, being Cuban, can you tell me a little bit about uh, your parents sure. uh, and the struggles that they may have had like many of us Cubans that came here to uh, America? My father came here when he was 17 years old from Santiago de Cuba and uh, didn't have anything. Came to New York, um, didn't know a word of English, uh, met my mother, who actually was the daughter of a Colombian immigrant and German immigrant. Uh, she didn't know a word of Spanish, but love taught them both the language. And uh, my father was obviously a better teacher than my mother was, because my father's Spanish till the day he passed away. His English was not that great. He was always like, let me tell you something. He had a very heavy accent. But my mother could speak fluent Spanish in almost any dialect perfectly. Um, you know, they came here with, with basically nothing. Uh, I was born and raised in a small apartment in New York City. I tell the kids now um, that they're so lucky because when I was a kid, there was one show on television. 
It was Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom. I watched it every 7.30 on Sunday nights. It was like a, it was like going to church for me. These kids today, you've got Animal Planet, you've got uh, Discovery Channel, you've got National Geographic Channel. You've got this plethora of great programming. I never had that. Um, so I was very, you know, I, I was glued onto that television. And the other thing was going to the zoo, going to the Bronx Zoo, growing up in New York. Um, because my parents, again, you know, I look back, I think the greatest compliment I could give my parents is that we didn't have much, but I didn't want for anything. And I think that's a great thing. I know at Christmas, I look back, you know, my father made my toys. He, he was a carpenter and he made little race cars for me that he carved and he made all kinds of things like that. And I really loved it. I had a great time with that stuff. I didn't have a lot of the, the nice box toys that some of the other kids had. And in looking back, I never missed it. I enjoyed myself, but I realized my parents struggled just to make ends meet, you know? And it wasn't until that I got older and I was able to look back and realize, wow, what they were able to accomplish for me and my sister. I was the first person in my entire family to go to college. Um, you know, what they made possible for me to go to college is just amazing. Um, I, I, I carry a little bit of guilt because my father uh, was a carpenter, was a contractor. He worked hard every day of his life. I remember him coming home. He'd ask me to help him take his boots off, his work boots off. And you know, my father had huge calluses on his hands from working so hard. Um, I've never had to know that kind of work. And uh, there's a certain amount of guilt you carry around because of that. Um, you know, my father had only a third grade education. And yet in hindsight, he was the smartest man I've ever known. I share those things my parents had multiple jobs mm -hmm. make ends meet and another thing that caught my attention was you were bullied um, oh, both for being Hispanic and being tall with a bunch of other names and and we were called Spick and oh, kind yes. of being one of the first Cuban families in our neighborhood so I shared those moments it was a very uh, difficult time for me you know first of all I was extremely I, I am extremely tall I'm six foot six but I had gotten to be you know very tall very quickly and um, was much taller than anybody in my class. Uh, in New York, it's not like Miami now, where you know Spanish is an is a accepted language, it's part of our culture. In New York, I was in a part of the city that I went to school where there were very few Hispanics. Um, my first language was Spanish, so I had to learn English kind of going to school. And man, they called me every name you could ever imagine. Uh, I was also called names that had nothing to do with my ethnicity. I was called, you know, McGilla Gorilla, Lurch, Frankenstein, uh, all kinds of names to where I retreated. I became very shy, retreated into my books uh, to where I studied. I studied so heavily, you know, that um, that was kind of the, 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 the way I had to escape. And then I did so well that then I skipped a the grade. They said, well, you know, you're, you're. so they skipped. I skipped the fourth grade, which you might say, oh, that's great. What a great thing. It was really worse for me because now I was put in further with people older than I was, more mature than I was, and I couldn't fit in at all. You know, it was a little easier for my height because my height was catching, even though I still was taller than everybody in my class. So it was very difficult for me. I always tell people now, you know, if, if your child has the opportunity to skip a grade, don't do it. Don't do it. Just let them soak up as much as they can because school is much more than what you learn in a classroom. It's socializing with people your own age. It's, it's that interaction between children that's so important. Learning how to connect with other kids. That social structure is so important because real life is not what you read in a book and regurgitate on a test. Real life is being able to interact with people and that's where school is so important. So it was difficult for me. It, it really was very difficult for me, but I remember my father and my mother both telling me, 
one day you're going to realize how important it was for you to know that second language, for you to understand the culture that you come from. And ironically, it wasn't until I was finally able to go to Cuba for myself that I realized, you know, I looked at my dad who had since passed away and I used to think all of his mannerisms, his cooking, his jokes, that was all part of the New York culture. When I went to Cuba, I realized, no, it was Cuba. I saw my father's face in every person I spoke to there, the humanity that I saw there. I'm not talking about the government. I'm not talking about the politics. I'm talking about the Cuban people who are a reflection of who my dad was and, uh, and made me, I'll tell you, I was never prouder in my life of my Cuban roots than when I got to meet the Cuban people who had nothing. I went there, they had nothing. They had shoes on their feet, they had nothing. They would invite me to their home and cook me whatever food yeah. they had and give it to me. And I said, let me pick, no, the restaurants wouldn't accept food for me because of the television I've done here. You know, I've done shows like Salado Gigante and stuff like that. And I didn't realize that there's something in Cuba called El Paquete, which is this thumb drive where they get all the programming that we see here in the United States and they watch it. Like we go to the movies, they had the El Paquete that they watched on television. I landed in Cuba and people were calling my name from balconies in Havana wow. going, Romagil, Romagil. And they come down and they take pictures with me. And I became overwhelmed with emotion because I said, why are you people being so kind to me? I, I saw my father. I remember my father. He would do that in the neighborhood. Come on over, let me cook you some food. And they always feed more than anybody could eat. But I realized it was a reflection of this culture, this giving culture of people just dancing and singing and the music. It, it was such a reward to me. And in hindsight, my dad was right. I've never in my life been prouder of my Hispanic heritage, of being of the, of the Cuban roots that uh, I think are, are really the foundation of the passion I feel for everything in life. So segueing into Sábado Gigante, 25 years where really one station, one show mm. goes to so many millions of Hispanics. Tell me that story. Well, you know, Sábado Gigante was almost by accident. I was walking through the zoo one day and Don Francisco, for those who don't know who Don Francisco is, he's the host of the show and to the Hispanic culture, he was to the Hispanic culture what Johnny Carson was to the American culture in the heyday of his, of his show. Um, he was walking through the zoo and I was doing a presentation with some animals out there and he came up to me afterwards, he goes, do you speak Spanish? And I said, no, you know, I, I used to know Spanish, but I don't really speak it at all. He goes, you need to get back to Spanish. I want to have you on my show. And I said, well, I don't know what your show is. You know, it's Sábado Gigante, it's a good show, and I've never heard of it. But I said, sure, you know, if it gives me an opportunity to connect with people. My goal was to connect with as many people as possible about wildlife, to get them to care about wildlife. To make a long story short, I go to do a show, and I'm kind of taken aback, because the show is this three-hour extravaganza every Saturday night, and it's kind of a combination of the gong show, Jeopardy, <laughs> Oprah, let's make a deal. It's a whole bunch of things put together, okay? And I said to myself, oh, I don't know if this is kind of my thing, you know, and I'm talking about animals. And the fact that I didn't know Spanish very well became part of the shtick of the show because his goal was to always kind of make fun of my Spanish. He'd say, I say a word and he'd go, okay, how do you say it? You know, I go, oh, and he goes, no, 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 you say it like this. And it became part, and you know, I started thinking to myself, is this just gonna be a, a comic thing? Or, you know, I don't know if that was my thing. And you know, one of the greatest pieces of advice I ever got, he sat me down in his dressing room one day. And again, I had no clue how huge of a celebrity he was. Um, he sat me down in his dressing room and said, Ron, let me give you a little piece of advice. In life, it's too short to take yourself too seriously. You have to learn to laugh at yourself. Look at me. Every Saturday, I go out and make a buffoon out of myself. And it's true, he'd put on these stupid hats and he'd do all these, Mueva la colita, he did all these crazy things. He did all kinds of silly stuff that I think, 
but he connected with people. He understood the importance of connecting with people, not, not lecturing to people, but connecting, making people feel like we're all the same. And I thought it was just a great, great, you know, wonderful thing that he did in, 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 in making that connection. And I said to myself, you know what? Okay. It's really a great piece of advice. I've since then never hesitated to go out to make a fool of myself as long as, as it accomplishes the, the goal of connecting people to wildlife. He says, it's, you know, you have to realize it's not about you. It's about making people happy. Um, and, and I'll tell you, it, it really is a great piece of advice. He taught me a lot. Uh, in all those years I did those shows with him, I was always amazed that he kept inviting me back. It got to be, you know, where I was I was on once a month, every month. Very endearing, especially <laughs> with uh, Hispanics. Um, and then you uh, realized another one of your dreams uh, throughout your life, watching black and white TV, Jim Fowler, and mm -hmm. Perkins, correct? Right, Marlon Perkins. Uh, Mundo Salvaje, right? <laughs> How did that happen with Hit End? An another just unbelievable of the stars aligning. You know, I tell people all the time, and I, I, I carry a huge chip on my shoulder because of this, and that is that television gives credibility to people who many times don't deserve. Um, the people who deserve all the credit that the on-camera people are getting are the people you never see. The writers, the editors, the camera people. I mean, these are all the people who make everything look so good. Um, I enjoy presenting wildlife. Uh, you know, we talk about Wild Kingdom, that was my church show. Well, about 30 something years ago, I got to meet Jim Fallon. He became a mentor to me. He taught me how to communicate, how to present animals, how to make that connection with people. Um, he recently passed away and I, one of the proudest things I was ever able to do is establish a scholarship in his name at his alma mater, because he taught me about the value of animals and, and, and how to present animals in a respectful way. Um, so Wild Kingdom was always that, that foundation block of, of what I do in my life, and my career. And then all of a sudden, this network out of New York, it's a national, international Spanish mm -hmm. network. It's like the Spanish PBS HITN. The CEO of HITN flew down here and says, you know, we watched you on Sábado Gigante. We watched you on these other shows. We'd like to do a show with you. And I go, because I'll be honest with you, I had been offered several shows prior to that, but they really weren't what I wanted to do. I mean, it was more, quite frankly, I have a problem with some of the wildlife programming I see today. I think it's more of just sensationalizing things, you know. I'll give you a classic example. Shark Week, when Shark Week first started, it was a wonderful, wonderful series of shows that showed you how incredible sharks are, how wonderful they are, the important role that they play. That has slowly but surely evolved into Shark Attack Week. Nothing but sensationalizing sharks and this danger and the goriness and all this stuff. And that's the wrong message. Because, you know, when you watch programming today, all you see is like, one animal's attack, the world's deadliest, uh, you know, river monsters. That's the wrong message. Because if I'm a kid watching that on television today, I'm going to say to myself, I'm never going to go out into the wild because I'm, something's going to kill me. Something's going to hurt me. I don't want to do that. I want to plant a seed in kid that inspires them to want to go out and learn more about this, to learn more about the wonder of nature. That's why I try to tell people, animals aren't mean. If you properly respect an animal, you should never find yourself in a situation to be hurt by one. So a lot of the shows that were offered to me were just that, doing, you know, narrating the world's deadliest of these animals attacked. And I said, no, I'm not doing that. So HITN came to me and they said, what do you want to do? 
we just want to have a show with you. And I said, you know, my model show was like Wild Kingdom, where they presented animals and they talked about it. Then that's what we'll do. We'll do Wild Kingdom in Spanish. Mundo Salvaje. And they said, not only is it going to just be Mundo Salvaje, they said, Mundo Salvaje con Roma Aguirre. They put my name in the title. <laughs> I mean, I mean, the first time I saw it on my DirecTV listing, it says, Mundo Salvaje. So I'm, I'm listed on the show. I was blown away. But in reality, I have very little to do with the success of that show. I'm just, I'm just introducing the pieces, ins and outs, with my terrible Spanish still. Um, but, you know, what I've come to realize is that the Hispanics understand my Spanish very well. And the fact that it's not perfect is endearing to them. They it's find the way it, most of us talk day in and day out. Well, I, I think I'm worse than most, but but they, they find it endearing, and I find them, you know, always come out there, oh, I don't know what the word is in English for simpatico, but, you know, endearing. You know, it's just, uh, and, and, I, and I've come to understand that. So I don't get all flustered when I screw up a word or I say la when I should have said el or I say, you know, because I realize people understand what I'm saying and they, they, you know, they, they connect with me that way. One last story that I was so touched was, and I don't know if I'm giving the name proper, Sammy. Mr. Sammy. I was so touched by that story. I have their picture behind my desk all the time. And these are two of the most amazing people I've ever known in my entire life. And I'm going to tell you the story about the Samites because they are everything that's right about being a human being. Uh, after Hurricane Andrew, this place looked like a plane had crashed into it. It was totally destroyed. And I was going around doing different types of presentations at civic groups and civic organizations. And I was speaking at Coral Gables, uh, at the Coral Gables Rotary Club, I believe it was. And I'd give my presentation, you know, and after the presentation, people would come up and say, oh, thank you for that, you know. And this elderly gentleman, and I say this with a little bit of shame, but hopefully teaching other people a lesson, you should never judge a book by its cover. This elderly gentleman came up. He was wearing clothes that looked like he had bought them in the Goodwill store 10 years ago. He came shuffling up to me and he said, I've been watching you on television and I've been listening to you do these types of presentations. And I just want you to know how proud I am of what you do for animals. I just believe that animals need a voice like yours to help them out. And I wanna help you in what you're doing. He handed me an envelope. And I didn't want to open the envelope. You know, it's just I didn't want to look at it. You know, I said, oh, thank you so much. And there was a lot of people behind him that wanted to talk to me after this. So I said, thank you very much. He goes, just keep doing what you're doing. And he shuffled away. And I saw all the other people. And then I finally got back to the zoo and I was putting away my stuff. And then I went, oh, I had this envelope. And I opened it up and I pulled it out. And it was a check for $90,000. And this is another embarrassing thing I'm going to say. My first thing was, oh, the gentleman's probably got dementia or something. And, you know, because even the check was written like it took him a long time to write it. Like the lines were very squiggly and he didn't have a smooth handwriting, you know, like it was, mm -hmm. it was effort to write the check. I said, well, let's deposit and see what happens. You know, I mean, I thought it bounced from here to LA. <laughs> it went right through. And I went, oh my gosh. I wrote him a letter. I said, Mr. Samai, I don't know what to tell you. I mean, I, I'm just, I had no idea when you handed me that envelope what it was and I, you know. He wrote me back, he said, all I ask is that you don't tell anybody where you got it from and keep doing what you do. That's all I ask. I don't want anybody to know where you got it from. Mm -hmm. I said, absolutely. And you know, of course here, the development people, everybody wants to know, who is this guy? They say, oh, I want to go ask for more money. I said, I'm not telling anybody. I, I made a promise. Mm -hmm. A year later, almost to the day, 
sitting at my desk. Reception says, this gentleman here to see you. Sure, send him back. Comes walking in, shuffles in, it's Mr. Samurai. He puts a $100,000 check, $100,000 check on my desk. And he says, thanks for keeping your end of the bargain. And I said, Mr. Samuel, I'm sorry. I know you want prep, but I need to know more. I want to make sure I'm using this money the way you want it spent. Mm -hmm. Is there any way we can just sit down and talk? Mm -hmm. And he said, why don't you come to the house? Mm -hmm. I'll introduce you to my wife and we can sit and talk. Mm -hmm. I said, oh, please. He goes, but remember, don't tell anybody. I said, absolutely not going to tell anybody. I got the address. It was a Carl Gables address. And I figured to myself, okay, this guy's probably going to live in a huge mansion. You know, he's you know, just probably just kind of a recluse, you know, but it's going to have this big gated wall or something. His home is in Coral Gables, but in a very humble part of Coral Gables. I drive up. It's a small little house with a little wrought iron railing. He's sitting on a, one of those chairs that my parents used to bring in the beach, one of those vinyl flip out mm -hmm. chairs. He's sitting on one of those chairs with his little cane. In the driveway is like some 15 year old Datsun B210 old beat up car. And I'm thinking, is this where this man lives? Is this what he drives? This man has given me $190,000 in the last two years and he's living in this humble. And he shuffles up, he goes, it's nice to have you here. He goes, come on inside. Let me introduce you to my wife. The door opens and it was like walking into a time warp. Everything was pristine, clean, but it was like back in the 50s, the 60s, all old furniture. His TV was an old television, tube television set. There was an old General Electric radio like you saw in the radio shows, you know, when they listened to like, the shadow knows, it was that, but it all worked. It all worked. We sat down, his wife comes shuffling in, beautiful woman these crystal blue ocean eyes. Petite woman. She goes, nice to meet you. She has an Irish accent. She goes, I'm Winnie. And we sit down and we started talking and it just started talking about everything, about his life, about why he loved animals. I will never forget the story he told me. He said, when I was a young boy growing up in the 20s, my first job was delivering ice, ice blocks. Wow. Okay, back in the That's 20s. That's going back. And we deliver them, we put them on the back of a carriage and a horse yeah. would drive through the streets and I would take the ice thing and wow. carry the block up the stairs. There were no elevators or anything. Yeah. You carry the block up the stairs and put it in an ice box. And that's when the first time I realized where the name ice box comes from. Mm -hmm. It was just a box that they put the ice in. Okay. And he remembered that in the summer, the horses would get overheated and they would collapse on the streets and the guys would beat them and make them walk to deliver the ice. And he said, I'll never ever work with an animal like that again. And I will, as soon as I can put two nickels together, I'm gonna to do what I can to help protect animals. Mm. And that's what he did. And, he, and I asked him, you know, once we got more comfortable, because I don't know if you remember the book, Tuesdays with Maury. Oh, yes. Okay, well, my life became Wednesdays with Al. Oh, I would go every Wednesday, I would go and meet with Al and have a little lunch with him and just talk. Oh, and my dad had since passed away and he became like a father figure to me in many ways and just, teaching me the value of certain things. Anyway, um, I asked him, you know, how, how he made this money? Because I, there's, and, and, and he told me, he said, listen, Ron, his father was an alcoholic that as soon as he was old enough, he forced out of the house. So he stopped abusing his mother. And he remembered during the great depression, he said, I would go with my mom every month to pay the electric bill at Con Edison in New York. 
And he said, even when people had no money, they stood in line to pay that bill because everybody needed electricity. Mm -hmm. So I said, the first time I had two nickels to rub together, I was going to try to invest in Con Edison. Oh, and that's what he did. Yeah. He bought little stocks in Con Edison, oh, and then he bought little stocks in, in other, uh, what was then, uh, what's now Exxon Oil and things like right. that, all the utility and, and energy stocks. Mm -hmm. And that's how he made his money. He invested everything in stocks and he never cashed them in. That's he never cashed them in. He just took the dividends from them exactly. and he lived off of them. He also had his own hardware store. He made his own tool shop and everything. He retired when he was like 50. <laughs> and he just fell in love with animals. He married Winnie. They never had any children. And we just became like family. Um, for years, every year, he gave me like $100,000. And then he got ill. He got elderly. He was in his 90s. And he looked at me one day and he said, Ron, the only thing I ever ask of you is I want to die in my house. I don't want to die in a hospital. And I said, Al, whatever I can do to make that happen, I'm going to do that. He got sick. The doctor said, you know, you should probably go to the hospital. I said, I talked to the doctor and I go, listen, is he going to get better? He goes, no, this is just going to be a slow, you know, you need to get. And then the doctor told me about hospice care. Mm -hmm. Uh, I didn't even know anything about hospice care, but I can tell you right now, that is one of the most treasured group of people on this planet. I'm a hospice volunteer. <laughs> I, I, this, it's, it's the greatest respect I have for human beings mm -hmm. are hospice workers, mm -hmm. because what they do is priceless. And, um, and we had hospice care with him. Mm -hmm. And slowly but surely, you know, he started going downhill and downhill. Uh, and I'd never seen anyone die before in my life, mm -hmm. but I was with him. And I was holding his hand, his wife was holding his other hand, mm -hmm. and the hospice nurse was there. <clears throat> and you know, as that happens, you know, he takes a breath and then there's no breath for like five minutes. And there's another breath and there's no breath for like 10 minutes. And then there's another breath and then there's no breath, you know. And I looked at the hospice nurse, you know, and he puts a thesoscope and I look at him and he goes, that's it. You know? It was the most peaceful transition I've ever seen in my life. I remember because from that day on, I was never afraid to die again. Mm -hmm. It was just an incredible, incredible thing. And his wife looked at me and she goes, is he gone? I go, he's gone. What was really amazing to me was the last thing he said to me was, please take care of Winnie. That was the last thing he said to me. The last time he really could speak, he said, please take care of Winnie. And he always told me when he was still strong enough. He goes, you know, the reason I hold on so long is because of Winnie. I want to make sure she's okay. Because he goes, I'm ready to die. He had lost his sight. He couldn't hear very well at the time. He says, I'm ready. I've had a good life. I'm ready. He was at peace with that. Because I just don't want to leave Winnie. I want to make sure she's going to be okay. So when he passed, I made him that promise. I said I would do that. And I did. But three weeks after he passed, I got a call from his attorney and his wife, his widow, said, I need you to come to the office. Again, to make another long story short, they read the will. The will left $100,000 and the house to his wife and left the rest of everything he had to the zoo in my name, stipulating that only I could say how that money was spent. He didn't trust government very much. <laughs> he didn't trust bureaucracy. He said, when people have these big boards with all these people, he goes, everybody has an agenda. I trust what you do. I see what you do, which is why I give you this money. And it kind of really, really shook me to the core. 
because it turned out to be millions of dollars. And I, I, I was blown away by that. And we set up a trust here at the zoo. The amphitheater was built with a lot of those funds wow. because the amphitheater is the hub for the zoo where people can come and learn about right. animals. It's called the Sam I Family Amphitheater after and I told That's him, I said, I, I told him, I said, Al, you know, I'm going to name something after you. <laughs> because he never wanted his name on anything. He goes, mm -hmm. after I'm gone, I guess it would be nice that people knew my name a little bit, you know, because he had no children. He had no, no, nothing. This will inspire yeah. other people. Exactly. Looking at the picture, such a kind. He was person. the kindest, Not gentlest such. soul you could ever imagine. His wife was an angel from heaven. Um, and I went through the same thing with his wife. Several years later, his wife went into hospice care and she asked me the same thing. She says, Ron, like, oh, I just want to, and I'll never forget something that happened. And he was a hospice worker. I don't know if this ever happened to you, but it, when you talk about goosebumps, she had gotten to the point where she would go in and out of consciousness, mm -hmm. you know? And again, like Alice, the breathing became labored. Um, she wasn't really cognizant of anything. And I'd sit there and I'd hold her hand every night. And then one night, I will never forget this as long as I still get goosebumps. She opened her eyes clear as day and she sat up and she goes, Albert, Michael, like that. I'm looking at her. And the hospice nurse goes, who's Albert and Michael? I go, that's your husband and her brother. She goes, they're still, they're not alive anymore, are they? I go, no. She goes, she'll be going soon. I still get, I still get emotional thinking about it because I said, what does that mean? She goes, they've come together. Mm -hmm. She's seen them. Mm -hmm. and, and I go, what? And this was a seasoned hospice nurse, one of the most wonderful women I've ever met in my life. She goes, I've seen it many times. Mm -hmm. Right before they pass, mm -hmm. they see these, this, this energy of people they love mm -hmm. who tell them it's okay to come. Yes, to walk to, to follow her. And the next morning she passed. And I'll never forget that as long as I live. And from that day on, I believe in those spirits. I believe in my dad. I believe in those people being around. Because that was... That's beautiful. These people are like no one I've ever met in my life. Ever in my life. I don't know if I'll ever meet anybody like that again, but I feel incredibly blessed to have met yes. them, to have known them. This is everything that's right about being a human being with these two people. That's it's a good segue because wow, you wanted to ask you. him about some <laughs> of the uh, foundations that yeah. he has, and I now you know where some of the funds come from. Right. Just, that's right. Look at, so go ahead and ask him. Yeah, yeah, I'm just going to ask that. Yeah. Um, that's great. Uh, now, I'm a hospice volunteer for people that die alone because God it's people's you. biggest fear. Oh, God So bless it's you. a very rare calling of when that happens because mm -hmm. most people have someone right. that they were lucky that they had you. I was looking at them. Yeah, so it was it was mutual for sure. Mm -hmm. um, that's very special. Um, I was wondering because you have touched on definitely some of the famous people that would be uh, appropriate uh, guides for you and and people that you would look up to or or be a, feel feel like they were like you. But but was there anybody when you go back in time that was a teacher or somebody before you were the Ron McGill that everybody knows? Uh, you know, I I can't say enough about my parents. I mean, it's oh, just my parents. Yes. My parents were the greatest examples oh, any kid could have. They always just taught me to do the right thing. They taught me about respect. They taught me to believe in myself. And many people told me what well, my dreams were impossible. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I I mean, my parents really were my heroes in that sense. And now, my big inspiration, I will tell you, 
our kids, <laughs> our children. You know, behind me, I have the pictures of my family, people yes. are very close to me. But what you might not notice is that as I sit at my desk and I look straight ahead, there are two photographs there. Oh, okay. Those photographs are two kids that represent several other kids. But those are two kids who aren't with us anymore. Mm -hmm. I do a lot of work for the Make-A-Wish Foundation. Oh, yes. And Very these children who come out, and I'm always so taken by their wishes to spend a day with me and the animals. Mm -hmm kids who have seen me on TV or kids who have done that. And, and I, I, I put those photographs there because both of those young children inspire me more than you could ever know because they faced the greatest challenge anybody could face. They ended up dying because of those challenges. And yet they were always smiling when they were around me, always smiling, you know, girl on the left there, Danny, she had a brain tumor and she told me that the day she spent with me was the best day in her life. I put that there behind that picture every year her parents buy uh, a memorial that goes in the paper mm -hmm. and I cut it out and I put it back there every year. So I'll never forget that girl. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I'll never forget the young man. These are people that their smiles were everything. Mm -hmm. And it made me understand that, you know, there's that old saying that it doesn't matter at the end of the day what kind of car you drive, what kind of house you live in, how much money you have in the bank, but that you make the difference in the life of a child. Mm -hmm. And that reminds me when I get upset about stupid little things, you know, something that doesn't go right and they get in a bad mood or something, I look there and I go, stop it. Mm -hmm. You got nothing to complain about. Mm -hmm. I can tell you right now, and I mean this sincerely, if I walked out of this office and died tomorrow, I would never have a regret in the world. I would not want anyone to feel sorry for me because I have lived a life that I could only have dreamed of as a kid. I've traveled around the world. I've stepped on every continent. I've done things that I, as the son of a Cuban immigrant who had nothing, to have been able to experience what I have is, I, I worry every day that things have gone so well for me that I'm gonna experience some kind of tragedy and it wouldn't be with me. You know, every night before I sleep, I always pray. I say to God, I say, God, the only thing I ask is that I outlive my wife and my children. That's all I ask. Mm -hmm. I want my kids and my wife to be happy, healthy, and safe. That's it. Mm -hmm. Anything that happens to me, I've already gotten way more than I deserve. Mm -hmm. So I always try to keep my feet grounded on that. I also try to make people understand that I've dedicated my life to protecting wildlife and to making people understand wildlife. Mm -hmm. But having said that, I also want people to understand that there is no single human life or a single animal life that's more important than a human life. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I get a little, I get a little upset when I see the media grab a story because that's some video of a puppy being saved, mm -hmm. okay? And your children suffering with nothing. Mm -hmm. And because the suffering is so extensive, it's like people become numb to it. I don't ever want the challenge of an animal to over be more important than the challenge of a, of a, of a person, mm -hmm. of a child. Mm -hmm. I've always felt that if we keep those priorities correct, if we take care of the people, they'll take care of the animals. The animals. Mm -hmm. So we great. have to understand that. I learned that after Hurricane Andrew here mm -hmm. was, you know, 
again, because I was very lucky to have met all these people, to have these platforms in the media, yeah. doing the Today Show, Good Morning. We sure. had tons of people bringing us all kinds of supplies, mm -hmm. bringing us trucks of ice and things like that for the animals. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking there are people right down by Coleridge Mall that are waiting yes. in line just for ice, for anything. For they weren't water. getting it. Right. Water. Right. And you're bringing stuff. I go, listen, folks, these animals are fine. Mm -hmm. They're used to being outside. Mm -hmm. They don't need ice. Okay? <laughs> they don't need these things. We've got the food for them. They're used to being outside. It's the people who've lost their homes now outside in the Elm are not used to it. Need those. Are, so I would take those trucks and I said, please, don't stop here. Take the next exit down the turnpike at Coleridge Mall and you'll see there are people waiting in line. Give them those supplies. We have to keep our priorities straight. We have to make people understand what really is important. You know, I try to do that in conservation. You know, I'll tell you a real quick story. You're gonna have to edit this, but I'm gonna tell you a real quick story. Are you doing okay? Yeah. Okay. This is, and, I'll, and then I'll stop after this. Oh, it's no, the first no, time no. I went to Kenya, you know, I would lead, I would lead trips to Africa, mm -hmm. and people going on safari to Africa tend to be fairly affluent. Yes. They tend to have a lot of fun because it costs a lot of money to go there. Mm -hmm. So this one woman, I'll never forget her. Wonderful lady, very affluent. She had a home here in Miami. She had a home in Vail. Uh, you know. First class, everything. We went to Africa. We're in Kenya, and it happened to be, we got there, and a farmer had just killed an elephant that had raided his crops. This woman went up. I mean, before I could even grab her, she went up to him and just started laying into him, like, "How dare you shoot that animal? That animal was here before you were here, and you know you had no right to do that." I took her to the side because this man was distraught. He was so distraught. Um, and I said, listen, Joyce, you flew over here and the price that you paid for your first class ticket from Vail, Colorado is more than this man is going to see in five years, okay? What just happened there with that elephant is that elephant eliminated all the food he had for his family for the next several months. That's how he's going to feed his family. That man didn't want to kill that elephant. That man wanted to save his family because that's all he knew on how to feed his family. How would you feel? Because I know she, she always ranted about her granddaughters. I go, how would you feel if your granddaughters were starving because an animal was coming in and taking all the food they were supposed to eat? And to her credit, she went, oh my gosh. She went over to that, she went over to that man and she said, I'm sorry. And he's, 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 a, he's visibly emotional and upset because I did not want to kill the other. You know, because mm -hmm. I didn't, I just, I had to feel, I don't know what I want to do. And she wrote him, she gave him a thousand dollars. She just gave him a thousand, she goes, I'm sorry. And then she became my biggest proponent for making people understand, listen, conservation is only going to work if you know how to protect the people who live alongside these animals. Mm -hmm. But it's like I say when I lecture the kids in schools, I go, listen, I've dedicated my life to animals. If I'm in the middle of the African bush with my wife and my children and they're starving, and the only way I know to feed them is to kill the very last rhino that's in front of me, the rhino's going to die. My children are not going to starve for any animal. So the challenge is, how do we make this so we can live together? That's what we have to do. You can't go with these extremist attitudes. Extremism in any form is dangerous. There has to be compromise. And that's the way we're going to make it work. So that's it.
Can I ask you one thing? You can ask anything you want. <laughs> I, I just think it's so fantastic because I couldn't wait to ask you about Bill Haas, and I see the picture right oh, there. Bill. Because my grandfather knew him. And really? He, yeah, my grandparents had a house behind the Serpentarium. So my grandfather used to tell me the stories about him, and I saw that you you got to that was, work with him, or what did you do yes, with him? Yes, that was my very first paid job, working oh. with animals, was at the Serpentarium. <laughs> I started there as a tour guide. Okay. Because I didn't have any animal experience. Okay. And then I slowly became a zookeeper and cleaning the cages. Mm -hmm. Okay. But only allowed to clean the cages of the non-venomous snakes On and the harmless animals. One? On yeah, US 128, the right there, right next to Sunnyland Park. Right, right. And, um, <laughs> and I went there and I started cleaning the cages. And then I became a supervisor. And I had another guy clean it. And then he let me start cleaning the venomous stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, working with the venomous stuff. Bill Haas was not much of a talker. <laughs> Bill was a man. He was friends with snakes. <laughs> and he, he was he was fairly quiet, very to himself. But you were very lucky if he took you in the sense that he allowed you to observe him. Mm -hmm. And I got to that point where I was able to watch him. Mm -hmm. And he watched and he and he, he taught by example. I watched the way he worked at us. And he taught. And it was really incredible to see a man, again, no formal college education, but smarter than most college graduates I've mm -hmm. ever met. Um, and he gave me my first job, my yeah. first opportunity, Great. and then made me curator of reptiles at the Serpentarium. Oh. And that was something I'll never forget. And then he gave me that picture That's when I left, picture. where he writes in there, you know, into all your future endeavors, hope to see you back in the fold. I moved on, but um, mm -hmm. I will treasure that photograph and treasure my memories of him and, and the opportunities he gave me. Was there anything other special that you had in question? Because I know I took a few extras. That you, <laughs> I know I could talk to know, you for sorry. everybody could no, talk no. for a long time because it's just so, you do so many important things. You know, again, I, I've got to tell you, Lainey, I I really don't do so many important things. I'm if I have any gift at all, is that I'm a storyteller. Yeah. I like yes, telling. You're very good at I that. like telling stories. I tell everyone you're the best speaker I've ever seen. Well. I like telling stories because I like to engage people like that. You're really good But at there it. are people that are so much smarter, that do so much more. And it's that, going back to that chip I tell you, I carry on my no, shoulder because people, people see you on television and they just think you're a lot more than you are. And I, and I want people to understand, you know, like this young lady, Sasha, you know, I, I, I look at her and I think, gosh, I wasn't nearly as smart and as passionate at her age when I was that age. Yes. So, you know, we need to feed that passion. Yes. We need to keep Definitely. enabling those That's why kids. That's to show her we have a to, great example. We have to keep enabling those kids. Those kids like Alexander, who want to ask those questions, yes. have those big eyes. But it's those kids, I mean, it's cliche, but they are the future. I know. You, exactly. you, you plant the right seeds in them now, and they're going to make the right decisions as they get older. I agree. And, and that's, that's something to me. So those are the people who mm -hmm. inspire me. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, I can tell stories, but I was lucky enough to be embraced by people who allowed me to live those stories. Yes. Well, I wondered um, because um, we wanted to to just give a shout out to Pittman Photo, and I wanted to I I really did uh, not understand what's the process because you have this right here yeah. of of uh, how do you become a Nikon ambassador and and what does that entail like what do you have to do after that do you have to. <laughs> Keep doing something. How does that work? Well, that was another thing that I, I just again being that. the luckiest person in the world, uh, being a Nikon ambassador is one of the greatest honors a photographer can have. Mm -hmm. There are only thirty-six of them in the world. Oh, I didn't know that. Yes, yes. Wow. Then, then um, it sure is. We keep adding a little bit to the list, but it's not like 
just any photographer can become an icon ambassador. Okay. An icon ambassador is someone who uses photography to empower people, to inspire people, okay. and to get them to make a positive difference in the world. Okay. Um, when I received a call from Nikon in New York, their headquarters in Millville, New York, saying, we would like you to become one of our inaugural Nikon ambassadors, I thought I was being punked. Again, I think to myself, <laughs> this can't be true. Are you kidding me? I mean, I know there's so many great photographers in this world. Sure. But they, they expressed to me, you know, it's not just your photography, it's passion. Mm -hmm. It's being able to tell stories, mm -hmm. being able to inspire others to want to take good photographs mm -hmm. and be able to convince others that they can. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, there's too many people in our world today, and I've seen it in various lectures, where they go in and they lecture and they speak down to people and they say, this is why I'm so good and why you probably never could be. Yeah. I'm sure you've come across some of those lecturers that are so full of themselves. They just want you to know why they're the best as opposed to telling you why you can be better. And I think I've seen that a lot with artists. Yeah. So, I, I, but I, photography I, is like a little on that Photography board. is one of those things where, you know, you've got to... One of the greatest photographers I ever met named Joe McNally. Oh, he's, yeah, a he's a fellow Nikon ambassador, yes. okay? And when I first heard Joe speak, Joe went up and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, that's Joe McNally, Sports <laughs> Illustrated, Life Magazine, Newsweek, the guy is legendary. And he started showing a bunch of images that quite frankly weren't that good. Hmm. And I'm thinking, and he's just clicking through, he's going, there's another one I did, there's another one I did. And he had this smile, he turned around and he looked and he says, those aren't very good, are they? And I didn't want to say like, no, I don't know. <laughs> because I'm, you know, you're Joe McNally. He goes, I took all of those pictures and I want you to know that I had to take a ton of those pictures before I ever took a picture that was good enough that you could see. Oh, that's good. And I still take bad photographs. Mm -hmm. We all do. Mm -hmm. Don't think that when somebody comes up here and shows you pictures, that that's everything that comes out of their camera. Mm -hmm. And I said to myself, finally, I got someone telling me that, you know what? You're gonna take a lot of junk. You gotta go through a lot of junk before you get good. Yes. And Joe was one of those people who empowered me. He made me feel like I could be a good photographer because I can do the things that Joe does and just go through this trial and error and, and learn. Mm -hmm. You know, Joe to this day never stops learning. Mm -hmm. Joe says he learns from me, which I think is a crock, but he'll tell me, he says, no, I love the way you do it. That's a great thing what you do. Mm -hmm. And that empowers people. That's I think good. it's very important that you empower people. Mm -hmm. You don't tell people why something's so difficult. Mm -hmm. You tell them why they can do it. That's, that's it. That's a nice message. Yeah, and Joe was my model for that. He oh, really was. Yeah. So the Nikon ambassador thing is a huge privilege. I feel honored to be one. Uh, to continue being one, I just have to keep telling my stories, doing my presentation, showing people how to take good photographs, and hopefully inspire them to get a camera and to do it themselves. Yeah. Well, just in, in closing, um, I, there's, you're, you have your conservation, which we learned a little bit about that, and also about the Harpy Eagles. I don't know what you would like to share or talk about, because we definitely want to take this message to the public, and that's the main reason why we came is to make sure that everyone knows how to give back to you. I'm gonna end. Show. I'm gonna end on that, which is the most important thing in my 40-year yes. career. Yes. When I started working here 40 years ago, it was never my intention to work for an attraction. I'm gonna say something to make some people uncomfortable, especially my coworkers. I am not fond of having animals in captivity. Um, I don't believe and ever taking an animal out of the wild and putting it in captivity. So I want to preface that by saying the animals you see in the zoo today, 99.9% .9 of them are animals that were born yes. in, in captivity. Right. And the other 0.9% are animals that are so old because 
50 years ago, they were taking animals out of the wild. Right. But having said that, I don't believe that zoos should be spending millions of dollars on new exhibits if they're not going to allocate a certain portion of that funding to protect the animals that they plan to put in those exhibits in the natural areas that they naturally occur in. Mm -hmm. Okay? So I got a little bit frustrated. The zoo does conservation work in the field, but it wasn't doing enough. Mm -hmm. We were spending millions of dollars on new exhibits, and every time the budget got cut, the first thing that got cut was any conservation money. By the time the exhibit was built, there hadn't been any conservation money put aside to take care of the animals in the wild. Mm -hmm. And here's my statement on that. If the zoo is the last place you can see an animal, zoos have been an epic failure. Epic failure. Mm -hmm. So I kept saying, we need to put conservation money aside. We need to put... And, you know, the bureaucracy, it was always cut. They always said, no, we got to build this exhibit. We gotta, if we don't build these things, people are going to come to the zoo and everything's going to be a new point. I said, I don't believe that, but you know what? Fine. I'm going to go and raise the money myself, which is part of the money that the Samis exactly. helped down for me. Mm -hmm. And I established the Ron McGill Conservation Endowment here at the zoo. Mm -hmm. And I established an endowment from what I learned from Albert Samai. Albert said, you need to put the money in and don't touch it. Mm -hmm. and yes. let the dividends the way he earned the money, the way he earned the money. right so that's great Very what nice. i had to do what i had to do and he said you have to you have to struggle in the beginning right because you can't start an endowment until you have at least a million dollars once you have a million dollars if you invest that properly that's going to give you anywhere between 60 and 70 thousand dollars a year that you can well touching your million dollars right. and you keep building on it mm -hmm. and that's what i did and people here laughed at me. They said, you'll never be able to raise that money. You'll never be able to raise that money. The thing I'm most proud of in my entire career is that the Ramagil Conservation Endowment now has almost $2 million in it. We have bought everything from radio collars from animals, for SUVs to do research in the Maasai Mara on cheetahs, vans to rescue animals in Panama. Um, we provided scholarships for children, uh, for uh, university graduate students doing conservation work in the field. And it's the thing I'm most proud of because as an endowment, if I die tomorrow, that goes on forever. Mm -hmm. That endowment can never be touched. I know every year, tens of thousands of dollars are going directly to conservation. None of that money can be spent in the zoo. Okay, great. Tens of thousands of dollars are going strictly to conservation. When people make a donation to the conservation endowment, it's totally tax deductible, but their donation never gets spent. Their donation is only added to the corpus of that endowment. And the principal. So, exactly. So all it does is help produce more dividends. Fantastic. And as that continues to build, and that's basically, that's what savings about. That's what, a, it's basically a pension. A pension that's what savings for meant. That's exactly what savings meant. And I learned that from Albert mm -hmm. and Winifred Samai. Mm -hmm. And that is the thing I'm most proud of. And it's what's given me a peace of mind, a sense of peace, mm -hmm. that I know that I can now retire from this job one day and know that that will go on for the rest of time. And that will be your legacy with that, that, them. That is what I want. When people say, what, is, what do you want your legacy to be? I want it to be the Ramagil Conservation Endowment, knowing that that is investing and supporting conservation for the rest of time. That's beautiful. I, I, we, we, just, we all thank you and applaud everything that you've done oh. and uh, sharing this special time with us. And, and I know it's difficult with the, with the quarantine and the pandemic. It's and, a challenge. And but all you know this what? stuff going on. Challenges, <laughs> challenges need to always be looked at as opportunities. Yes. That's all. You but, just have to look at it as opportunities. Well, your time is is very valuable, and and, and you're very. My time rewarding. is never too valuable for kids. Yes. Okay, good. that's especially true. Thank you, thank you so much. Well, thank you. We're touched. Thank My you pleasure. So much. My it's pleasure. Great to spend time with you. Okay, so we'll. Uh, yes,
Still to come on The Scoop on Miami is the 305's hidden treasure. Still considering coming on our show? Hear what our guests have to say about us. Uh, well, before I say that, I just wanted to mention uh, your segment, Laney, on MacArthur Causeway. I spent a lot of time on the causeway and over in Watson Island, and it was very informative, and I really enjoyed the history lesson. Oh, thank uh, you. So that was, that was excellent. Hi, good afternoon. First of all, I just want to start by saying that that was a beautiful segment. Uh, very well done. Uh, thank you. Very, very nice and very accurate. Thank you. Thanks so for having much. me. Oh, it's um, it's just a thrill for us. Thank I'm you so, so much for celebrating the volunteer and highlighting. <laughs> thank you uh, so much. The Cayocho story. But Bernie and Lainey, I just want to thank you guys for everything you're doing for the community and the podcast. I know uh, it, it's just a fantastic job that you guys are doing. And I know that you're doing this right out of the bottom of your heart to promote a small business and, and uh, you know, Miami business and Miami in general. And uh, it, it's such a uh, wonderful, it's so wonderful to be here with you today. I mean, here you are doing all this and never once have you come up to me or any of the, I guess, all the other people and asked for anything. You're just doing it uh, for the community to get out there, to get the YouTube channel going. And it's, it's just fantastic work. So thank you so much. With hundreds of brokerages, thousands of agents, how do you cut through all the noise? One Premier International Realty, a boutique real estate brokerage located in Coral Gables, doing business the old-fashioned way, putting people first, buying, selling, or leasing residential and commercial properties in Miami-Dade, Broward, and Monroe counties. One Premier International provides each customer a high level of service and communication experience with full-time agents from around the world bringing their unique sense of business skills and a foreign customer base. One Premier International Realty. You've heard of private banking, now experience private brokerage, a higher level of service and knowledge. One Premier International Realty, 305-669-0233 or go online to www.onepremierinternational.com. We're back with more of The Scoop on Miami. Find our podcast on iTunes and on YouTube as a video. Our Facebook page and thescooponmiami.com. While there, don't forget to subscribe, share, and like our podcast channel. And now, here's Ernie Enad and Lady Rada. Okay, we're back. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was a great interview. We had a, uh, a really, we had a great time with... Uh, uh, Ron McGill uh, last Friday um, with all of my um, issues uh, with the video and so forth. Um, but uh, he's just such a great storyteller, um, loves kids. And um, uh, I know that uh, both kids had a wonderful time and got a lot out of that interview. Uh, I do want to say um, to Alexander, I am working on your piece and I will have something for you for next week. So we, um, I lost some of your sound to go with your video, so I'm going to make sure that I work on it this week uh, to get something on for you by next week. Um, what else, Lainey? What do you have? Well, now we have uh, the hidden treasure. We do have the hidden treasure, as we do every single week. And tell a little bit about um, Willie. What are you talking about? 
I don't know what he's talking about. What is the uh, <laughs> treasure this week? It's really, oh, oh, okay, okay. Because the way you're saying it, you took it out of context. I was like, I what? Did. I'm thinking you're saying I Lily. I, was, I thought I was wrong. I'm saying, no. oh, did I record no. the wrong one? No. We had so many issues with this podcast. It's the last thing I needed. I'm going to be playing the wrong segment, but but I'm not. So tell us a little bit about uh, 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 the 305's hidden treasure. Well, it's really big and really old, and you do have to go get out of your car and go find it on this property. So you'll hear about it. And hopefully some of you have seen it because it really does take your breath away. It's, it's, uh, I, I haven't seen anybody that walks up to it and, and just walks by. I think it's pretty surprising. Let's take a look at Lainey Rada's hidden treasures. And now it's time for the 305 Hidden Treasures. Hidden Treasures with Lainey Rada. Bones tell a story. On a remote island in the Arctic, 4,000 years ago roamed the woolly mammoth. In fact, this creature with mythological status roamed the entire northern hemisphere. The last ice age ended. Global warming followed 15,000 years ago, shrinking the ice and rising sea levels, creating habitat loss and lack of food. Our hidden treasure brings us right back to that moment. Titled Gone But Not Forgotten, the English artist Damien Hurst put together a skeleton of the woolly mammoth that is nine feet tall in 2014. It's part of his natural history series. Hearst is reportedly the UK's richest living artist. Hearst donated the piece to AMFAR, the American Foundation for AIDS Research. It was sold at auction for over $10 million. No need to dwell in the past. This one is plated in 24 karat gold and protected in glass with a gold tank for all to see. It is in the most unique setting at the fabulous Faina Hotel located at 3201 Collins Avenue. This ancestral creature will stop you in your tracks right on the pathway to the beach. Legend, history, and science are surrounded by palm trees every day. Stop by and marvel. $10 million can go a long way. Well, it, w it went to charity. Hmm. So that's, that's the good part. So it did go a long way. Mm-hmm. So what else, Lainey? We've come to the end, no, of another yes. uh, Scoop on Miami podcast. Um, we've got some stuff lined up and we are booking the uh, guests. Um, some we'll, more we'll come back in six months. <laughs> <laughs> We've got uh, some restaurant owners, a credit repair uh, company. Um, uh, I've got several other uh, uh, companies that we've been talking to and uh, getting a book got delayed this week with all of my editing um, fiasco, but at least we were able to put it on the air. Um, anything else you want to talk about before we close? I'm good. Fantastic. We'll see you guys next week on the Scoop on Miami. Don't forget to go to scooponmiami.com, www.scooponmiami.com. Visit the guest links page, leave a comment, watch the episodes, and listen to them there as well. You can go to iTunes, Spotify, and everywhere else. And don't forget to leave a comment as well as share, like, and follow our program. 
We hope you're entertained, informed, enriched, and proud to live in Miami. We have come to the end of another episode of The Scoop on Miami with your host, Ernie Imad, broker, owner of One Premier International Realty, and Lainey Rada, a leading-edge broker associate with Douglas Elliman. Thank you for riding alongside our journey. If you know of a special person doing wonderful things in our community or want your business featured, visit thescoopmiami.com and contact us. Find The Scoop on Miami on iTunes. Subscribe, share, and like our podcast channel. While there, leave a comment. We'd love to know what you think. And now you have The Scoop on Miami.